I want to start with the past as prologue. I just want to give you a little bit, just enough of what has happened up to this time so that you can understand this conversation between Moses and, and the Lord. So the golden calf has happened. The, uh, the wild abandon saying that Moses is not coming back and we need to have a God has happened. And the people have repented. God has forgiven. But in that process, he said, I won't go with the people. And my presence will not go with the people. I'll send an angel with you, but I won't go. So um, Moses has also broken the tablets that God wrote the Ten Commandments on in his anger. And uh, at this point, Moses is trying to convince God to go with them as originally planned. So Moses earlier, in front of the burning bush, uh, when God called him, tried to convince God otherwise. And he, uh, you know, in our heads, if you were, if you're my age or older, you probably grew up seeing the Ten Commandments yearly. I always wondered why they showed the Ten Commandments at Easter, but they did. <laughs> and the thing is, uh, Moses was not Charlton Heston, <laughs> and Cecil B. DeMille did not, did not write the Bible. <laughs> Moses is a very different person than this huge, larger-than-life character uh, that they tried to portray in a movie. He, um, he kept giving God, when he called him, a lot of what-ifs. What if they ask this? What if they do that? He was very scared. He had been through such a hard time and was hiding basically. So uh, he finally, he finally said yes. Okay, so fast forward to now, Moses is wrestling with God again. And um, does it feel like you have been wrestling with God in this time, in 2020, where you dare not say what else could go wrong, because it probably will. And what have you felt wrestling in your soul? Could it be identity? Could it be heart? Could it be story? Could it be all kinds of things? Because this time frame has really called us to deep things that sometimes we um, try not to pay attention to. Have other things that we can do, but not with COVID, and not with COVID. So I can hear, you know, hear someone saying, "Diane, duh." I mean, <laughs> you're in it too, and this is true. So whether you have had shifts in your life, like I moved in the middle of COVID, and I'm doing this residency, or um, you have uh, had your job ended because of COVID, or maybe uh, your job had to change dramatically and you have to work from home and you're a teacher and you can't be with your students face to face, or maybe you're work from home from a, a company and your children are in the other room doing school virtually. It's all kind of changed and it feels like wrestling. 
So, and maybe you've lived a little bit longer and you have some pre-existing conditions and you find that you have to fully quarantine because of the concerns from COVID. So, you know a little bit about the wrestling that Moses is doing with his life and now with the people he has a responsibility to. So Moses, at this point, in this juncture, in verse 12, he is trying to convince God to go with the people. Don't just send an angel, please. We need your presence to go with us. Um, and, uh, and Moses reminds them that the Israelites are his people. You, God, took them out of captivity, and they're your people, because God had turned around after the golden calf and said, they're your people, Moses. No, no, they're your people, God. And so um, he needs God to go with them. So he begins actually to use God's own words and what his promise was and what he wanted to see happen for the, for the Israelites. And basically, we helping God to remember, not that God forgets, but bring to the forefront, this is why, this is why. So Moses is saying, don't send us up from here without, without your presence. And you hear God say, I'll do it. Sure, my presence will go with you. But Moses keeps going. And it's like he's so earnest and so wrestling with this he doesn't hear that first time. And so then um, in verse 17, it's like Moses gets to his questions. What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the earth? And it's like it goes silent. And God says quietly, that's how I feel. I feel it was done. I will do it the very thing you asked because I'm pleased with you, and I know you by name. So, and it's sort of like at the end of that, Moses blurts out, now show me your glory. It's like, let's go for it. <laughs> You're saying yes to me? Let me, let's, let me see your glory. So, here's the thing. Moses is a person who desperately wants not just to be known, which is what God has been saying, I know you, I know your name, but to know God. And that must ring for Christ City pretty closely because of our statement, a place to belong and a place to know God. And that's where we're at. We want to be, we want to know God. So here we get to what God says he has to do. He, uh, he says, you can't see my face. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in this uh, cleft in this rock, which is a divide. It's a crack in the rock. And my hand is going to cover you. And I'm going to pass by. And then Moses will take his hand, not Moses, God will take his hand down. And Moses will see God's backside. Now, if that feels sort of humorous, I think it is too. <laughs> see God's backside. But 
I guarantee you, I'd rather see his backside than anyone else's. <laughs> so, um, Richard Rohr writes, um, it's, it was not the indirectness that hit me when he was reading that passage, but the directness. My best spiritual knowing almost always occurs after the fact in the remembering not seen until God passed by. I realized that in the moments of diagnosis, he's talking about when he first had cancer, in the moments of diagnosis, doctor's warnings, waiting, delays, and the surgery itself, I was as fragile and scared and insecure as anybody would be. If I could say with the full, if I could stay with the full narrative, full narrative all the way into and through only afterward could I invariably see trust and enjoy the wonderful works of God it is largely after the fact that faith is formed and gloriously transmuted into hope for the future so there's an important piece in that that we need to stay in the narrative. I don't know about you, but there are many times I want to just check out. And I have, quite honestly. But you want to stay in the narrative. Because in that narrative, God is at work. And I want to talk about this thing, the cleft of the rock. Because that's where we're at. We're in the cleft. And a cleft, if you've ever looked at like cliffs or um, divides in a rock, a crack in a rock, it's jagged and it's hard. And God is going to put Moses in this hard and jagged place. But the thing is, God's hand is on him. It's over him. And it's uncomfortable and it, uh, but he can still see God's hand. And then when God passes by and his hand is lifted, he can see God's backside. So I want to tell you a little story uh, about my life where I was in a cleft in the rock for actually about 20 years. And then there's another story that's a shorter story, about a month long. But I'll start with this one. In 1999, I stood in the hallway. I was going to University of Texas at Austin. I stood in the hallway of one of the communications buildings. If you watch uh, Austin City Limits, uh, at that time, it was in the building right next to the building I was in. Uh, I just do that for, it was kind of cool. <laughs> but anyway, um, I just met with my master's thesis advisor and he uh, and I was wrapping up my thesis and I realized that I really I had a lot more questions than I had answers and so I'm standing in the hallway and I'm looking at a bulletin board and I said God do you want me to do a PhD and uh, the closest thing I know to hearing God yes, and it's part of our relationship. But well, that's the craziest thing to hear.
Because <laughs> you don't think of, you know, a PhD and God going together. God has all the knowledge. He doesn't need a PhD. But okay. And so I moved. You now here's where the craggy rock comes in. I moved to Illinois to do my doctorate at the University of Illinois. Now, part of the, the hard crack in the rock was I have no children. My nieces and nephews, I was a second mom to them. And I had to face, the night before I moved, I realized, I tried not to even think about it, but I was going to have to leave them and go from being a second mom to being the cool aunt. Cool aunt's pretty good, but second mom's even better, I think. So I moved to uh, Illinois, and uh, I would still visit the kids and the family on, at holidays and fall break and all of that. But in that process, um, I began. So for my, I began to realize my research, and my research was how we create these spaces that um, create mutuality. You know, we come to this place and suddenly we're all on the same, we're on the same page and we can talk further. We're not trying to come to understanding, we're there. And how does culture shape that in learning? How does culture shape uh, mutuality, which is the beginning part to learning? And uh, I'll save you the whole uh, spiel about mutuality because uh, that's, yeah, that, I love talking about that, but that would take us off. So here's the thing is that uh, I did my doctorate and I did a study with uh, teachers and how they created mutuality with children and how much of themselves were in that and how much of it were actually techniques. And uh, I enjoyed that. But I didn't want to be a professor. There are several of you in this audience who I actually taught as a professor and I can probably attest to uh, I love my students but I wasn't the greatest professor for education. I'm a little bit of an egghead but um, I wound up becoming a professor because the voice whatever wasn't telling me what's next. And I tried everything. There's another hard surface in that cleft. I don't know what I need to do, but I've got to go with what I'm prepared. So I became a professor, and that's what brought me to Memphis. I was a professor at University of Memphis for four years in educational psychology, which is my, my field. And then uh, that fourth year, I decided, yeah, I don't know what I'm supposed to be, but I don't want to be a professor. And so I, I quit, but here's the deal. It was May 2008. Yeah, some of you remember that. 2008, June is when the bottom fell out and gas became four bucks a gallon and I was not employed. And I had just gotten a great Dane who would eat me out of house and home. And yeah, so the, the cracks just keep piling on the hard places. So fast forward, I became a professor at Union University because they had an opening 
and uh, I was just about to run out of money. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'll be a professor again. And uh, I had the great pleasure of, of being a part of the beginning of MTR and uh, several other things for urban education. But, and that was January 2009, and then in August 2018, I was no longer a professor. Um, I knew I had been going through a lot of changes inside and recognizing and grieving things that never happened that I wanted to have happen. And it wasn't um, that my life looked so different from everyone else, it's that there were things that I think God wanted me to do or had for me to do, but I didn't, I felt like I missed it. And then grieving other things, like in that, my dad died, and yeah. So, uh, and I stepped away from the church for about four months and grieved, just sat in my bed and cried. And when I came out of that, I realized I'm not, I don't want to be a professor anymore. I'm done. And so uh, the university, I wasn't going to accept a contract. And they called me in and said, we're not issuing you a contract. And they were like expecting me to be really angry. And I was like, oh, no, that's great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and so, and I think God walked me through that. OK. So I start, I'm talking to the pastors. And that was Robin. And Jamin, I think, was a part of some of that. And so was Drew. And uh, I started exploring, and I found something called spiritual direction. And I read the description, and it felt like home. And I shared it with the pastors, and Drew read it and said, oh my gosh, Diane, you've been doing that with me. And, it's, and, it, and it has to do with building mutuality. Are you getting it? I was in the hard crack. But yet, God was preparing me all along for now. Building mutuality is the corner, is the bedrock of spiritual direction. And so uh, that's when I realized, oh, that's what you meant, God. So 20 years later, that's what you meant, God, when you said this was about our relationship. Oh. And so sometimes you'll be in a crack that is a long time. And you may not even know fully that everything that's going on is connected, which I didn't. Or you may be in a crack that is COVID. And it looks like it has an end time. We just don't know when. Or it might be the month that my dad was uh, diagnosed with cancer. He was diagnosed at the end of February, and April 1st he died. And I had the great privilege of sitting with him almost every day, helping my mom, giving her a break. And I got to know my dad like I'd never gotten to know him before. And that was a gift to me. But it was a hard crack, too, because then I had to say goodbye to him. So we all have these places, but we also have God's hand on us. God's hand 
and God's, it's going to sound crazy, but God's backside <laughs> to see. So I just want to encourage you in all the stuff that you're experiencing. And you're in the cleft of the rock. And God's hand is on you. I think right there, I think I'm going to stop and pray, and then we'll do communion. Okay, so bow your heads. So God, I I think I've come to the place, God, though I don't know that I can do it every day, but thank you for the cleft in the rock. It feels hard, but your hand is with me. And I ask God that each one here and... Uh, online, that they can feel your hand more than the hardness and the cragginess of the cleft, and that uh, we really lean into you. And um, God, let us see you, even if it's the backside. Let us see you and know you. Thank you, God, that you want us to know you. Amen. Amen.